Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to Romans, the 10th chapter. Romans chapter 10. We're going to read a couple of verses here in just a moment that will set the stage for all the things that we want to think about tonight. We will lean very heavily upon the writings of Paul this evening, much of the things he wrote in his epistles. And so let's be looking in the Scriptures together and working together for these next few minutes in God's Word. It is great to see everybody tonight. So glad that you are here. Uh, glad that you were willing to get out and brave the elements a little bit. It was raining rather heavily there uh, a few moments ago, but we're, we're thankful for the rain, thankful for the good things that God showers us with in other ways as well, and just grateful for the time to be together as Christians and as God's family and involve ourselves in worship, the very most important things uh, that we can be involved in. In Romans the 10th chapter, let's read the words of Paul here, beginning in verse 13. In Romans 10 and in verse 13, there the apostle says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. According to a study that was conducted by National Public Radio, 43% of Americans say that their greatest fear in life is public speaking. That's even greater and higher percentage than the fear of flying, or the fear of heights, or the fear of frogs, or even the fear of death. Nearly half of Americans say that their absolute most dreaded fear in all of life is public speaking. That probably says something about how warped and twisted us preachers are. Because we like doing this. We do this voluntarily. We want to do this. In fact, we believe that this is something that God expects us to do. That passage that we just read there in Romans the 10th chapter says very forthrightly that preaching is essential. It plays a critical role in God's plan to redeem men and women to Him. And this evening, I want to talk a little bit about the vital role of preaching. And I want us to think about the role of the preacher in a congregation. It is no secret, Brother Mark even mentioned it in his prayer. Uh, we are getting close to the time, the hour of our departure. as We're about to begin a new work in Tennessee. And so I'm continuing to think, I've been doing lots of assessment of my own work here over the last eight years, but at the same time, I'm also mindful of the fact that the congregation is fixing to go through some very important decision making. And so one of the jobs that I believe that I have as a preacher is to do some equipping of the congregation. And this evening, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to do some equipping as it pertains to searching for an evangelist. I want to present this evening some ideas about the role of the preacher not so much as if I'm speaking to the preacher, whoever that man may be. I really want to talk about this subject from the vantage point of the congregation. I want to talk to you tonight about what it is that a church should expect from an evangelist. What is it that is God's expectations for men who would preach the gospel? It is my belief that there are basically two kinds of preachers. The first are those who preach because they can't do anything else. These are men who are, maybe unfortunately, very lazy and are not able to cut it doing work in other venues of life, in other parts of this world. These are the folks who unfortunately churches will choose to support 
And since the church doesn't expect much, the preacher doesn't do much. The second group of preachers, though, are those who preach because they don't want to do anything else. They live to share the gospel of Christ. Their greatest desire is to help people to be more like Christ and to go to heaven when they die. These are the people who become evangelists because they believe that their lives would be wasted if they did anything else with them. And that first group of preachers that I described, they are generally very ineffective in the cause of Christ. While the men that fit in that second category, they are men who are very effective in carrying out the charge that's given here in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. And as a congregation, I want you to know this evening that you have the right to expect that the preacher here, whoever that may be, that he is an effective proclaimer of the gospel of Christ. And so this evening, I want us to turn our attention to the pages of Scripture, to the New Testament specifically, and I want us to see the biblical expectations for a man who makes it his life's work to preach the gospel. And maybe I ought to start that this evening, talking about expectations. Maybe I ought to start by talking about some qualities that you should not expect from an evangelist. There's actually just a whole long list of things that people think an evangelist should do or things that evangelists should be, but in fact these are things that really don't have any basis at all in Scripture. Like for example, you should not expect the evangelist to have eloquent speaking abilities. A man who has great pulpit presence. A man who is articulate and witty, and funny, and charming, and has an extensive vocabulary. He's a gifted storyteller. He has a smooth delivery and a wonderful style. When I open up my Bible, and I read the words of one of the greatest preachers in all the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, there's a man who describes himself in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 1 as a man who did not come with excellency of speech or wisdom. Being an amazing orator... That's not a prerequisite for being a proclaimer of God's Word. Now, is it good when a man is able to be a great speaker? Absolutely. That's a wonderful thing to have. That's kind of a nice cherry on top of that cake there. We even studied about a man like that this past Wednesday night in Acts chapter 18. The man Apollos was described as being an eloquent speaker and he was using that talent and that ability to the glory of God. But again, if a man has those qualities, that's just a bonus. That's not a requirement. I should say as well, when you're thinking about an evangelist, you should not expect a man who is going to bring to your ears ear-tickling sermons. I've referred to it regularly throughout the years as cotton candy preaching. That is those soft and fluffy sort of sermonettes that we hear them and yeah, it kind of sounds good, kind of makes us feel good, kind of tastes good, but then we all leave here and we're totally unchanged by that preaching. The Apostle Paul said that whenever he was preaching, he didn't have time for that kind of nonsense. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in 1 Thessalonians 2 and in verse 4, Paul says that his preaching was not about, verse 4, pleasing men. In verse 5, he says he did not speak words of flattery. And then in verse 6, he says, I don't preach in order to receive glory. Those things are not the function of preachers. And I would suggest to you this evening that churches who accept weak and spineless preaching will only end up producing weak and spineless Christians. Furthermore, you should know that an evangelist should not be expected to be a walking Bible encyclopedia. 
There is kind of almost this unspoken rule that the preacher ought to know the answer to every single Bible question. He ought to be able to virtually quote every single verse in the Bible. He ought to be able to know the solution to every single query or question or issue that might arise. Now granted, let me say this, a preacher that is being supported, especially on a full-time basis, he is going to have more time that he's able to then devote himself to the study of God's Word. He's able to do what Paul charged Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, to be a diligent student of the Word. And because of that, he probably will be in a position to develop a greater understanding, a greater depth of knowledge of the Word of God. But I want to make very clear, the preacher, at the end of the day, he is not an inspired man. He's not. And what that means is, is that means that he cannot and he will not know everything. And you shouldn't expect him to. In fact, one of the most gracious things I've thought about the congregation at Lakeside is you have suffered long with me over these last eight years that when I came to you, I didn't know a whole lot about much. But I'd like to think that because of your grace and your patience, you've allowed me to grow and to learn more as I've worked along. Let me throw one more thing on this list of things you should not expect from an evangelist, and that is you should not expect him to be a man who will be a do-it-all handyman. There is sometimes the thinking amongst folks that, hey, since we're... Since we're paying this guy, well, we of course expect him to preach all the sermons, rightfully so. We expect him to teach all the Bible classes. We expect him to initiate all the Bible studies. But then on top of that, we also expect him to be the guy to open up the church building and lock the church building. We expect him to fix the faulty light bulb. We expect him to be the one to set and officiate all the temperature setting on the thermostat. He's the one who has to take care of all the weddings and the funerals that come along. He's the guy who's the AV guy and the cleanup guy and all these different roles wrapped into one. I mean, hey, if there's a job around here that needs to be done, he is the man. Yet it is remarkable to me when I look at the Apostle Paul just how many times in the New Testament Paul talks about how he, in his role as a preacher, he did not have to do it all. You read, for example, in Colossians chapter 4 and in verses 7 through 11. In Colossians 4 and in verses 7 through 11, Paul just fires off a big old long list of all these names of people who he identified as fellow workers. These were my fellow workers in the kingdom. That says to me that we each play a part. And that means that all of us need to be very careful with how we view the preacher. We should not view him as our personal hired errand boy. The preacher is simply a fellow worker. And he and the congregation need to be working together with each one carrying their share of the load. Now, having said some things there kind of on the negative side... Let's talk about the positive side of things. What is it that a church should be looking for? What is it that a church should expect from a man who serves in the role of an evangelist? Well, let me start with this. In fact, this will be the keynote for the evening. You need to expect a man who is a worker, a hard worker. In fact, that term worker is going to be just the important word of the night. Laziness should not and cannot be tolerated with a man who serves in the role of the preacher. I'm looking for 2 Timothy chapter 2. I referenced verse 15 a few moments ago where Paul told Timothy there, study to show yourself approved unto God. Some translations like the ESV don't use the word study. Instead it uses the phrase be diligent. Whether you're talking about study or be diligent or do your best, all of those expressions describe the idea of putting some muscle into this. 
Here's somebody who's putting maximum effort into this thing. In fact, in the last part of verse 15, Paul goes on to say he needs to be a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In fact, if you stay right there in that same chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, would you back up to verse 3? Look at all these various kind of word pictures that Paul uses to describe the work of an evangelist. In 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Verse 5 now, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Then verse 6, It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. You think about those three metaphors there. Think about a soldier in warfare. Think about an athlete running a race. Think about a farmer out working in the fields. All of those occupations require what? They require discipline. They require determination. They require diligence. Why did it just make it simple? It requires some plain old hard work. And Paul says, so it is with a man who chooses to do the work of an evangelist. You know, you can read in the book of Proverbs, and I will not have you turn there, but in Proverbs chapter 24, the wise man talks there about the field of the sluggard, how he passed by the field of a lazy man. And what did he see? What he saw there was all kinds of weeds and thorns and thistles all grown up. It was all overgrown. And he saw how the stone, where there used to be walls, they were all broken down and they're all kind of covered over with all of these, these thorns and thistles and weeds. You picture that in your mind and man, it's just, a, just an ugly portrait. Can I suggest to you that that is the picture of a church whenever they tolerate a preacher who is lazy, a preacher who is a sluggard. That's why I'm saying to you this evening, right out of the gate, you have the right to expect, to demand a hard working preacher. Let me fine-tune that a little bit. Let's build on that. Secondly, the church has the right to expect a man who is, well, it gave it all away all at once, but a man who is a worker for the Lord. Now, I understand there is a sense in which the evangelist works for the congregation. There is a sense in which the man, of course, he is receiving wages, he is receiving support from the congregation to do that work. And so there is somewhat of an employer-employee relationship. I know that sounds kind of crude, but, but that is kind of what's going on there. However, you understand and I understand that the real boss of that man, it's the Lord. In fact, is that not true for all of us in our occupations and vocations? Is that not what Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 3? That when you do your work, you do it as to the Lord. As if the Lord is the one looking over your shoulder and assessing your work and your job. And for a man who is a preacher who's involved in spiritual work, that is absolutely the case as to who he has to ultimately answer to. And so as a congregation, you have the right to expect that man to be a worker for the Lord. What does that mean practically speaking? Well, as you can already see, for one... It means that he is a man who always acknowledges the Lord. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 12, Paul said there about himself, he said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, putting me in the ministry. That that I'm able to do what I'm doing because of the Lord. It's all because of Him. Furthermore, that man being a worker for the Lord, it means he's someone who gains his strength from the Lord. 
That wonderful passage in Philippians 4, verse 13, that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's Paul, a preacher, saying that. I know where to go when my fuel is running low. The Lord is the one who fills me up. Thirdly, he's a man who's always ready to show and to give credit to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 3 and in verse 7, as Paul talked about the work that he was doing, the work that Apollos was doing and other preachers were doing, he says it's neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but it is God who gives the increase. You have the right to expect a preacher who works for God and understands that God is the one who's bringing the results. God is the one who's giving the growth. Furthermore, as a man who's a worker for the Lord, he's a man who's constantly in prayer to the Lord. All throughout Paul's epistles, you constantly see him praying for congregations. You see him praying for open doors of opportunity. You see him praying for the seed as it's being sown, that it would be effective. You see him asking other congregations to then be praying for him. The man who occupies the pulpit needs to most definitely be a man of prayer. And then lastly on this list... He ought to be a man who when he speaks, specifically when he stands behind this podium and speaks, what he speaks are the words of the Lord. Because if he's working for God, then he better be speaking God's Word. In 2 Timothy again, this time in chapter 3, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 14, Paul tells his young preaching brother about the essentiality of just sticking to the book. In 2 Timothy 3 and in verse 14, But as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. All Scripture it is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In fact, you could keep on reading into the very next chapter, the first five verses of chapter 4, where Paul tells Timothy, you stick with the Word. You keep on preaching the Bible, even if people don't like it, even if people refuse to listen to it, even if people develop those itching ears, even if they turn to myths and fables, you keep preaching the book. And you should expect the man who occupies this pulpit to be a preacher of the book. I understand there's lots of good resources out there. There's lots of great commentaries, lots of great books, books that are even written by brethren, lots of great articles, lots of other resources that are very helpful. I I draw from those resources from time to time. But you need to expect that that man, really, if you're kind of painting a picture of a preacher, you just need to have a man and in one hand is a sword. And that's all that he needs. It is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And you need to expect him to be sticking with that sword even when the things that he says from the book are things that you don't even necessarily like. Things that you necessarily didn't even want to hear, but you needed to hear them. We need to have the attitude that says, Brother, give us the truth. We want the truth. And we won't settle for anything less than the truth. Stick to the book. You deserve a man who's going to be a worker, a worker for the Lord. Let me suggest to you thirdly in this connection. The church has a responsibility, has an expectation that the preacher will be a worker, but that he'll be a properly motivated worker. You know, there are men who may work hard, and they may pour gallons and gallons of sweat and tears and 
maybe even blood into the work that they're doing as an evangelist. But they unfortunately may not be doing those for the most proper of motivations. What are you talking about, Josh? Well, for example, some work hard in order to receive the praise of men. They like that. That's what they're looking for. I'm thinking for specifically about the Pharisees in New Testament times. That's why they did their service to the Lord, because they wanted to be seen by others. They wanted to be praised by others. Some people work hard because, well, that may mean more money. Harder I work, then the more raises that I'll get, and I'll be able to, to become richer. In fact, that's kind of what we do in a lot of our other jobs. We try to work hard so that we can kind of move up the ladder and we can excel and, and do better. Well, I'm certainly not opposed to the idea of a preacher receiving a raise every now and then, but that's not the motivation for why we work hard. Furthermore, sometimes preachers work hard because they want sympathy. They want people to give them sympathy for all of their dedication and all their sacrifice. As preachers, we sometimes like to put on the martyr complex and we want everybody to know just how hard we've labored and slaved for you. Furthermore, sometimes people like to work really hard because there's maybe a measure of control that they can gain from that. I'm thinking, for example, about Diotrephes in the book of 3 John, how he loved to have the preeminence. There are preachers who crave that and desire that. Some men work hard because, well, they, they just want to keep the brethren off their back. I don't want them always kind of cracking the whip on me. I kind of want to keep them all at arm's length, so I'll work hard so that they'll leave me alone. That's, that's not a really good reason to work hard for the Lord. And then maybe lastly in this connection, sometimes brethren work hard because they want to make the church feel and think that they somehow are indispensable. Boy, I'm just so important around here. I'll make you regret ever letting me go. If you let me go, I'll tell you what, you just board up the doors. This church is going down in a, in a heap of flames. But you know what? For all of the wrong motives that a preacher might have in his work, there really is just one right motivation. And do you know what it is? It's actually something I touched upon in this morning's sermon. The one right motivation is love. It is love. It is love that must fuel the work of a man who serves as an evangelist. And in fact, let me break that down into two areas. First and foremost, you should expect that that evangelist is a man who has great love and fervent, uh, fervent heart for the Lord Himself. In John the 21st chapter, near the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus asks Peter three different times, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? Peter, do you love the Lord? He was asked that three times. And all three times, do you remember what Peter's response was? His response was, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And do you remember what Jesus' final response was to him? Jesus said to him, then feed my lambs. Do you see that the man who works to feed and to teach within God's sheepfold, he must be a man who loves the Lord? In fact, it was just a few weeks after that that Peter would then stand before a large throng of people on the day of Pentecost. And he would then preach. And he would feed the people who would end up becoming the lambs of God. And by that same token, not only should he have a fervent love for the Lord, secondly, he should have a great love for people. He is a man who loves others. He loves souls. I'm leaning again on 2 Timothy chapter 2. Would you turn there once more? In 2 Timothy 2, in verses 9 and 10... Paul talks there of some of the things that he had suffered and endured, some of the hardships, some of the difficulties that he endured as a preacher. Paul, why would you put up with all that stuff? Why would you go through all of those difficulties? Did you do it for the glory of it? Did you do it so that you could be, be praised for all of your dedication? No, that's not why he did it. 
Paul says in verses 9 and 10, I did it for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation. I did it because I wanted people to be saved. That's why I did what I did. In 1 Corinthians and in chapter 9, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says something similar there. Again, as he lists off many of the ways that he had given of himself. He talks about how to the Jew I became this. To those who are under the law I became this. To those who are weak I became this. Paul, why would you do that? Why would you go to all that trouble, Paul? Did you do it so you could get a big pay raise? I bet that's why you did that, Paul. You just want to make more money. No. Paul says, I did that for the sake of the gospel, that by all means I might save some. Paul worked hard because he loved the Lord and because he had to care for others. He wanted people to be saved. That was his primary motivation. And that needs to be the primary motivation for a man who serves in the role of an evangelist. We ought to be looking for an evangelist like that, a properly motivated worker. Which leads me to say something about, let me say something about the goals of this man. We need to find a man who is a worker, but he's a worker with a proper goal in mind. Several years ago, there was an experiment that was conducted on a group of processionary caterpillars. They're called processionary caterpillars because they always follow each other in a line. You think, for example, about a funeral procession. That's all of the cars driving down the road in a line, all headed to the same destination. Well, these caterpillars were so focused on always staying in the procession always making sure that they're following suit behind one another, that they never break line, even for just a moment, they were always concerned about ruining the procession. Well, in the experiment, what the researchers tried to do was they tried to place the caterpillars in a different formation. They placed them in a circle. Instead of putting them in a line, they placed them in a circle. And it caused them to then be in a constant loop. I wish I could have found like a, a gif of that, and that way you could have seen them just moving around and around and around like that. What the scientists did in that experiment is they then took a little bit of food and they placed it just a few inches away, just right outside of the circle, right outside the procession. And do you know what the researchers found? They found that instead of those caterpillars stopping, some of them going off to get a bite to eat every now and then and replenish their energy, instead, they just kept marching. Just kept marching. They kept walking in that circle, kept following after one another until finally... They all ended up starving to death. You know what the final verdict was on that experiment? The final verdict on that was that those caterpillars, they had confused activity with accomplishment. Because they were very active. Very active. But they weren't really accomplishing anything in the long run. They were quite literally going in circles. That happens with preachers. That happens with preachers. They can work very hard. They can be very, very active. And in the end, not really accomplish very much. It is possible for preachers to confuse lots of activity with accomplishment. As I've done some self-assessment over the last eight years, this is probably the point that stings the most for me. I fear that there have been many occasions where I've been very, very busy. I'm just all over the place, doing all kinds of things. Not really sure that that activity was accomplishing anything. Not really sure that we were hitting the targets and the goals that needed to be hit. What I believe you as the congregation have the right to expect is a preacher who has some really tangible and important and biblical goals in mind. 
Someone who has some, maybe some vision. I kind of even shudder to use that word because of the way that that's used in the religious world. But some vision about where we need to go. Here's point A where we are. Here's point B where we need to get. So how do we connect from point A to point B? And that's important. I think about Paul once again in 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's a goal-oriented fella. In 1 Timothy 1 and in verse 5, Paul says, The aim, that is the end, the goal of our charge, is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Paul says, hey, here's some goals I've got in mind, and we really want to be working toward hitting those targets, hitting and reaching those goals. And sometimes what happens is, is preachers, and in fact even churches sometimes, kind of sit around and scratch their heads because we're really not sure what our goals ought to be. Somebody maybe is going to be quick to say, well, Josh, I think we know the goal. The goal is go to heaven someday. Yeah, of course, that's the ultimate goal. But between now and heaven, whenever that may be, there's lots of smaller goals that we need to be striving for. Somebody says, can we maybe get some more definition about that? Well, somebody might offer, well, I think a good goal to have would be to be, be bigger in number, have bigger attendance numbers. Somebody else says, I think a great goal to have would be to increase our contribution, have more money in the bank account so that we can spend that and do more things with it in the work of the Lord. Well, those are definitely good things. And those are great if those things happen to happen, but I'm not really convinced that's a real biblical goal. You want a good goal for the preacher? You want a good goal for the church? How about Ephesians 4? Look at Ephesians 4. I think in a lot of ways, this could just be the mission statement of any congregation of God's people. In Ephesians chapter 4, in verses 11 through 16, listen to what Paul says here and just start enumerating in your mind the goals that Paul has in mind for the church. In Ephesians 4 and in verse 11, talking about the church, he says that God gave the church the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. Why? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Look at all that good stuff in there. The goal of unity. The goal of equipping saints for the work of ministry. The goal of spiritual maturity, both individually and collectively. The goal of edification. The goal of growing to be like Christ. Those are the kinds of things that give us some real direction, don't they? Again, if we don't have any targets and don't have any goals, we're just, we're just going to kind of be wandering around aimlessly, not really going anywhere. And so instead of going in circles, spinning our wheels Sunday after Wednesday after Sunday after Wednesday, here's some clear ideas about where we want to be going. You ought to expect that the preacher is going to be governed by that in all that he does, especially in his preaching. 
A man who is in tune with the congregation. He knows what we need. He knows the things that we need to hear. And so he presents those things. He's not interested so much in presenting the things that he finds interesting or here's the cool things that I've been studying lately. No. I'm preaching what the congregation needs, what the flock needs, so that we can get from here to there. You have the right to expect that. Which well, let me just say something finally about you have the right to expect that an evangelist will be a worker who will stay on task. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me here because I'm certainly not suggesting that the preacher should never have time off, that he should never get a vacation, that he can't ever have kind of some away time from the work of ministry. Everybody needs some time to rest, to relax, to rejuvenate, to recreate ourselves. Why, even Jesus, the greatest preacher ever, even he took time away from the crowds. Mark 6.31 talks about how he took time away from the multitudes to get re-centered and refocused on what was most important. What I am saying, though, is that truly effective preachers will not allow themselves to be easily distracted from his work. He is a man who will be on task. And he is focused on his work. You know, there are several instances in the New Testament where Paul took the time to charge a couple of young evangelists, Titus and Timothy, in telling them to stay on task and don't allow certain distractions to interfere with the work that you need to be doing. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 4, Paul told Timothy there, don't give heed to myths and endless genealogies. That's, That's chasing a bunch of rabbits. Furthermore, in chapter 6, in verses 3 through 5, he says to withdraw from people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Again, you're wasting time on people who don't even care about the Lord. Furthermore, in chapter 2, excuse me, in 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 23, he tells Timothy to avoid foolish and ignorant controversies. Titus 1, verse 14, Titus is told, pay no attention to Jewish fables or the commandments of men repeatedly. Paul tells these young evangelists, don't get caught up in all kinds of silly arguments, all kinds of pointless controversies, whatever the latest issue is amongst the brotherhood that the brotherhood's fussing about. Don't get involved in that because it doesn't do any good and it's a terrible waste of time. Furthermore, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul told Timothy to flee from youthful lusts. That is, there's just some things that preachers need to be very mindful of to steer clear of. Don't get swept up in the filth and the smut and the garbage that pervades our world. People are looking at you, Timothy. People are looking at you, Titus. So instead, you pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. Think about the example that you are setting. Those are the things that actually are going to help you in your work instead of being a hindrance to your work. And then we add one more thing to this list of things that a preacher should be expected to do as it pertains to staying on task. Would you look in Titus chapter 2 with me? In Titus chapter 2, take special notice of the instructions that Paul gives Titus in Titus chapter 2. In verse 2, Paul tells Titus to teach the aged men how they're to act. In verse 3, he says, here's some things you need to teach the aged women about how they're supposed to behave. Then in verse 6, he says, Titus, you need to teach the younger men how they're to conduct themselves. Then down in verse 9, he says, Titus, you teach the servants how they need to be obedient to their masters. Now, that covers a pretty broad spectrum, but did you notice there 
there really is kind of one glaring omission as far as categories of people. Did you notice that? Did you notice that Paul didn't say anything about Titus teaching and doing anything with the young women? Well, somebody might ask, well, well, do we not care about our young ladies? Well, of course we do. Well, who's going to teach the young ladies? Well, verses 3, 4, and 5, Paul says that that charge has been given to the older women. Younger women will be taught by the older women. Somebody might ask, well, why is that? Come on, don't be naive. You know why that is. Far too many preachers get distracted from the work they are called to do and they get distracted by women, by younger women. You may remember, this has probably been, I don't know, eight or ten years ago, there was the man over in Auburn, Kentucky, who was a preacher for a local church of Christ. And come to find out, he had been carrying on an illicit relationship with a teenage girl in the congregation for which he preached. As you can probably guess, at least last I checked, that man to this day is still sitting behind bars. What the Bible is saying, kind of indirectly, is preachers need to keep their eyes and keep their hands off of the women and they need to stay on task. They need to do their work. They need to do the work of an evangelist. Now, this is probably not an exhaustive list, but I do think it covers a lot of territory. And as we've talked about these ideas tonight... What I hope, as we've looked at these passages and considered these ideas, what I hope you've seen is that this is not just a list of things that the congregation should expect. Actually, as we've looked into the Word, what I hope you've realized is that this is what God expects. These are God's expectations for His special messengers. And so we're going to expect the same things. In fact, we're going to demand that the preacher will possess these kinds of qualities because for us to settle for anything less, in many ways, is to compromise the very will of God. Now before I close, can I go back to that list of qualities that you should not expect from an evangelist? In light of everything that we've talked about this evening, I now need to add one more thing to that list. And this is something that many churches just fail to remember. They just tend to forget, especially whenever things go amiss, whenever something goes wrong, this idea seems to just kind of completely just go out the window. And that is, you should not expect the preacher to be God in the flesh. He can't be. He won't be. The preacher is not infallible. Now, The tool that he carries around, God's Word, it most certainly is infallible. It is perfect. But the preacher is not. He is just a man. And what that means, practically speaking, I'll just be blunt, is it means he's going to mess up. I have messed up. There will be occasions where the man who occupies this pulpit, he will stick his foot in his mouth. He may do that while he's in the pulpit. He may do that when he's outside of the pulpit. He may do that in an email. Amanda Humble's not here tonight, but Amanda has rebuked me on more than one occasion because of the tone and the tenor of things that I've said in emails before to the congregation. You know what? I needed that rebuke. And there have been others who have came to me, and I've appreciated that folks have taken me aside, just like Aquila and Priscilla did with Apollos, and said, Hey, can we think about this? Can we talk about this further? Can we do that privately? Can we study about this? We need to be mindful of that. Because when the man who occupies this pulpit comes, he will mess up. You can just count on it. And when that happens, 
Don't immediately beat him up. Don't hold him and certainly don't hold his wife to some kind of standard that is different from everybody else in the congregation. Instead, do what you've done with me. You lift him up. You show grace. You show carefully, lovingly, where it is that he's missed it. Help him then to grow to be what he ought to be. In fact, that's what we expect him to do for us, right? And so in like turn, we're going to do the same for him. Now, just a moment as we're going to sing the song of invitation. Let me add one more. You'll do notice I've got a little bit of space there at the bottom of the screen, and I like symmetry. I've got room for one more thing that you need to understand that you should not expect from the preacher. And that is, you should not expect him to be a mind reader. He's not going to be. I've been trying for the last eight years to be a mind reader, and I've just found I'm not very good at that. I can't. I don't know what's on your mind. I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know exactly where everybody is spiritually. I don't know if you're faithfully walking the straight and narrow path or if when you leave this building you're out living like the devil. I don't know all of that. But you do. You know where you are. You know the status of your soul. You know the condition of that. You know whether or not you are in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, which is why we set aside time just like this near the end of every service to give you an opportunity to just come forward and to tell us what's on your heart and what's on your mind so that we can then assist you and help you in taking whatever steps are necessary for you to be in a right relationship with God. Can we help somebody tonight to become a Christian, to repent, turn from sin, and to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins as Acts 2.38 instructs? Can we help somebody this evening, if you are a Christian, to return to faithful service to the Lord, to confess your sins, to pray to God for forgiveness as 1 John 1.9 instructs and promises us that He will forgive. Whatever your need may be this evening, you just need to make that known. Don't just keep that bottled in. If you need some help spiritually, we set aside this time for you, specially for you. Seize this moment, seize this opportunity. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.